Well, hello everybody and welcome to this edition of your podcast of your Manchester. I'm joined today by the gorgeous Hayley Cartwright. Hello. Oh yeah, you're right. And the wonderful Argle Vargle Bargle. How are you doing? <laughs> it's all going on for you today. I tell you, Hayley, we've really got a brilliant. massive show. Really, really busy. Busy show. How many guests we got? Like, I think we've got like eight or something. Or? More than they have on the back row of guests who? True. Indeed. <laughs> uh, one thing we wanted to focus on though, and we will do that straight away, is workplace bullying yeah really really important subject that actually i think a lot of people have experienced bullying in their lifetime um adults children alike um i don't know where some people get off to be honest bullying i'll just be honest and say that no, it's true and one lady that's going to help us talk about this is a lady called emma kenny i mean i think bullying has always been a really major issue but i think that adults always struggle with this idea that because they're adults somehow they should be exempt from it the truth is that bullies grow up and unless they're dealt with young the world works for them so we get a lot of people who are really affected by workplace bullying and actually if I'm really honest there's also an element in bullying of psychopathy so you do have certain managers and directors who do fit that scale as well sadly. So why would people want to bully people within the workplace? What would their psychology be behind that? Well, on one level, there are genuinely corporate psychopaths, and we know that. So statistically, there is an element around 34% of really intensive hostile bullying occurs because of people with that mindset. So they're not like serial killers. They're people who have psychopathic traits and the world works really effectively for them by crushing other people. They tend to get to the top. The other side is that unless bullies who aren't in that category I've just talked about are actually dealt with, i.e. there are consequences to their behavior, the world effectively works for them. So unless you're getting a consequence for the actions that you're taking part in that are affecting people negatively, it's hard to address that. And the other thing is, bullying has different distinctions so it would be really easy if a bully was just somebody who stood and shouted at you in front of everybody because then everybody would be like well that's really inappropriate for that boss to have done that i mean that happens Mm. but certainly that's more visible on an occupational health level it's easy to get dealt with with by hr for example but if it's a sniper if it's somebody who just goes out of their way to load other people's guns and then they shoot you with them and that person is silently doing it, that can be really painful and really difficult to yeah. decipher. So people are good at bullying and also people don't necessarily understand the multifaceted layers that make bullies. Yeah. Um, what could somebody do about it if they were being bullied? I mean, that, to me, there is this one big issue that I want to touch on and that is if they're being bullied by their boss, there, obviously, you say that there's, you know, you can go up a level, you can speak to the person next up. If it's the boss, how could they deal with that situation? I mean, I think one of the things that I always say is recognise that you can leave your job because I think sometimes we have this big thing where the victim is told just find a way forward, become more confident, become more assertive. But if you've got a boss who runs the company and they are making your life an absolute misery, you don't have the opportunity to go to HR because maybe it's not a big company. Don't feel like you're trapped. You know, people think that economically, because they're in a situation where they're being paid, they have to put up with things that are inappropriate. So always know that you can exit. You've got a job. You'll be able to get another one and your mental health matters. Secondly, if you're in a corporation where there isn't HR, you've got an opportunity to go and speak to them about the fact that some is causing you difficulty and they have to act and on top of that sometimes it's just a character conflict 
But sometimes it is mm. that on a disciplinary level, they can actually take action. But like I said, the most important thing to recognize is there's an element of making yourself bullyproof, which means working on your confidence and assertiveness. Also, making sure that when somebody is doing something that is inappropriate, you try to challenge them in a very non-conflictual way in front of people so that they can actually see that you are saying, well, that's really inappropriate what you've just said to me, or I'm wondering why you feel the need to speak to me like this when there are other people around. And you can kind of manipulate the situation so that person thinks, you know what? this person is going to be more of an effort to bully than I imagined because they're always going to want to bully somebody unless they get real consequences. So you have to kind of make yourself, put yourself in a position where they're going to be like, I'll avoid taking that person on because they kind of seem like they're more assertive than other people. And that can be an effective tactic. You fake it until you make it in that way. And if someone's like um, self-employed, for example, so they're jumping from job to job, um, what would you say they should do if um, they experience bullying in that way? So perhaps they don't really know who HR is and things like that. Would you actually, is there anything that they could do? I mean, I think for contractual workers who don't necessarily stay in jobs for very, very long, obviously there are still some issues there with the fact that they don't necessarily have the same level of relationship with other people around them. So they don't have the same level of protection afforded to them. But the systems are still in place. You know, you still have a right to complain if you're in a company. I guess the big thing, though, for me is always like your personal happiness matters far more than your financial health. And you can find work elsewhere. And there always will be horrible people. But the reality is that you've got one mental health. And the point there is that it's essential that when you're really feeling that somebody's breaking you down, and we see it, we see systemic breakdowns we see systematic attacks on human beings because mm. what happens is if you've got a predatory nature then you will find the person that seems the most vulnerable i can give you a room of 100 people and the people who have that power about them that predatory behavior that bullying behavior they'll just sniff out those individuals they're not weak those people aren't weak it's just they're more sensitive mm. and they're therefore more easy to control mm -hmm. and um I suppose finally, what if somebody knew that there was bullying going on to somebody else and they chose to do nothing about it? I mean, is their job in danger if they decide that they want to report bullying about somebody else? I mean, I think personally, you know, if you can see somebody being treated really awfully, then you should think, what would I want that person to do for me? It's exactly the same in domestic violence situations. Like, it's better to speak out about it because the reality is people get away with things until people stop that happening. You just have to think about certain experiences in the last, shall we say, 18 months to say that we can mm -hmm. see that sometimes inappropriate things happen and people just take it and then that leads to more negative things happening. So maybe if we all find a voice and then protect other people, then essentially we can stop those kind of things continuing and we can call out those who are inappropriately using control over other human beings. I think that's powerfully important these days. Like a bat out of hell. There you are. That sums up nicely. <laughs> what a lovely intro. <laughs> Thank you very much, Argyle. We are now going to be talking about a musical called Bat Out of Hell. It was here originally back in 2017, and it's back now for a few weeks. We wanted to know all about it. So let's uh, ask this lady, Ash Cox. I had such a good time. And do you know what? I, normally, I don't go in blind. I would I'd usually do a bit of research, see what it's about. Um. But I remember back in 2017 when it debuted in Manchester, loads of people said to me, Ash, you need to go and see this. It's amazing. You'll love it. Um, and obviously I went to see it last night. I had no idea what it was going to be. And if you don't know about it, it's mad. I didn't expect this. So it's essentially um, the story of Peter Pan 
sort of loosely based on Peter Pan and it's set in this dystopian world and it's scored by the music of Meatloaf and Jim, Jim Steinman and it was it was mad no it wasn't what I expected at all and I loved it oh wow it sounds is it as good as when you last saw it Flower? because we went to see it together I think no we haven't been to see it um oh I missed it I think we because obviously we saw a lot of shows didn't we back then know, you know what I'm yes. like um yeah. I'm not a fan of jukebox musicals. I don't know if this is a jukebox musical, so I've been reading about it today because um, Steinman, he originally wrote this this sort of piece of work called Neverland, which was kind of based around Peter Pan. Um, and then, yeah, and then it was developed since this, and obviously 2017 was the debut. Um, I had so much fun. Um, sex, drugs and rock and roll. Well, sex, red wine and rock and roll it was last night. Um, and... <laughs> And I have to say, the leading ladies did it for me. The, the, really? the whole cast were great, right? But the, these leading ladies in here, so we've got we've got um, Martha Kirby, who plays Raven, who's one of the leading ladies, and then we've got the incredible Sharon Sexton, um, who, who works with Rob as well. They do a cabaret show together as well, which I didn't know, finding out all sorts. Um, hey. For me... Oh, this lady, Joelle Moses, she plays Sahara. Ah, yes. Her voice. Oh, I actually got goosebumps. Really? Oh. Yeah. Oh, wow. Voice and the 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 set the way that they've done the set. You know me. I love my contemporary theatre, and they've they've done this like multimedia and performance thing. There's like screens. There's there's a camera person on stage, sort of following the action. So you kind of you can view the piece. The, the show through a camera lens, through this big screen. It's kind of like a music video. Um, and obviously the music's incredible. The light and design, <laughs> great stuff. I had a lot Everything. They've replaced the main character, haven't they, this time though? Or I should say they've got a new person. It used to be Andrew yeah. Pollock, something like that, didn't yeah. it? And now they've replaced it. Equally as good? Well, I, I know, because I never saw him. However, I, I didn't fully connect with the lead guy. And I think, I, I, that, you know, that's really important for me because, you know, that's the main sort of love story. And mm, I didn't right. fully connect with him, but it's still quite early on. You know, they're only three days in, I think. Um, yeah. So hopefully that'll come with time. Um, and the storyline was a bit loose in parts as well. And I felt like there could have been more done with, with some of the storyline. But you kind of forgive that because you've got like these rock ballads yeah. and the lights and the pyrotechnics and and all that, and it just, it gave us an absolute buzz. And even better as well, we had, um, there was 25 Harley Davidsons doing a parade outside the theatre before. Oh my we God. We saw, yeah, no. I don't know if we got the VT for that. I, th I don't think I put it on, to be honest with you. But oh, anyway, so, not. maybe I have. Anyway, so out of 10, what would you rate it? Oh, right, if I'm saying, if I'm classing it as a Duke's box musical, which which might be a bit controversial because I don't know if it is or not, of all the jukebox musicals I've seen, that's the best one. So 10. If it's oh, around, just out of jukebox musicals. If it's looking at all the theatre experiences I've had it, with, with sort of gig theatre and stuff like that, I'd probably give it an eight or a nine. Because but I the big spoiled. question is, though, Ash, did you come out singing? Oh, my God, I'm still singing now. One of the cast members from Bat Out of Hell is, of course, this next gentleman. He's been in it since its origination. That's a word. I'm saying. Origination, new one. Should we have that? Should we keep it in? Let's do it, indeed. This is Rob Fowler. 
you know, we fought really hard to be here and we couldn't have done it without the support of the um, Manchester audience. They're just phenomenal. And all the all the Bat Out of Hell, which we call the Bat Fam, all the Bat Out of Hell followers of past and present and are bringing new, um, how would you say, new fans of the show with them. Now, you play the villain in this, but it's it's one of them good villains because he's got a lot of heart and he's got a lot of passion and he's doing what he's doing for a reason. Perhaps talk to us about the character that you play. Well, Falco is basically just somebody who's trying to protect his loved ones after, um, which is kind of surreal because of what we've been through in the last 18 months in reality. It's kind of what Falco has been through in, in his um, world of Obsidian, where he's just trying to keep his family safe away from out of harm's uh, um, length. And, just looking after his daughter, but that means that sometimes he has to put his foot down or he's, um, he's a bit overprotective. He's... Now, obviously, you developed the show right from the very start and it was done here in Manchester. How has it changed over the last well, two years, shall we say? Well, it's definitely for the tour. It's The show has changed in a way that it, they've condensed it to be able to tour it, but it's become stronger and it's made the, the story arc much more, I don't know... Um, humble or it's a bit more wholesome and um the it's a smaller cast but the sound which we all produce is equally as as big as when we first opened um which is nearly half a decade ago jim you know he's a wordsmith if you if you, if you even take like lyrics like two out of three ain't bad and then he can put it with a lyric uh, with a, a melody and it's such a clever lyric or you took the words right out of my mouth. It must have been whilst you were kissing me. It's such a clever way of romancing somebody and making that give people that image of, of his storytelling through song is brilliant. And I also get to sing one of his new songs, which he wrote for Bat Out of Hell, What Part of My Body Hurts the Most. And it's such a such a, a wonderful journey for this, especially for the redemption of this character, Falco. It's such a wonderful uh, um, joy to have have been trusted with such a wonderful song to to put out, and the audience seemed to love love his music even more so. I find in the, um, the basically the scene of theatre, and perhaps after his passing as well, perhaps people are more you know aware of the the wordsmithshipness behind them. I just made that word up there, but we will have that. We'll, um, have that. we'll put that in the dictionary. Yeah, it's, it's, it's what he does and what the actual show is, is, is very, very clever. Why would you suggest that people come to this show? And why would you tell people that it's not a, a jukebox musical? I would say people should come to this show because it's like stepping in a time warp and you remember that wasted youth, not to pun on Jim's lyric, but he just makes you feel young at heart and young again. And I've had audience members come to this show and they say, my God, I'll go home and I'll want to eat something I used to eat as a teenager or, or as a young adult. It just makes you want to put on your old vinyls and just be young again. And then on the flip side, it makes all the teenagers that come to see the show basically feel some kind of escapism and a relief that they're not alone because the, the daughter of this character, Falco, is 18. She's locked away in her room. She's not given the freedom or the trust or the respect or the independence that, they, that an 18 year old wants to be able to have. And so I think there's something for everybody in the show. So I really do think that let your wild side out. It's the best two, escapism, two hours of escapism that theater can offer. 
Next, we have Charlie and Stan. That is a show on At The Lowry. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing that, actually. It looks really cool. It's set in 1910, but that sort of acts as a springboard into the past, into the future, and like I say, into the imagination. So in terms of the um, storyline, it follows um, the the Carno troupe, which Nick is playing Carno, um, who's runs this theatre company, and not many people know that actually Stan Laurel, um, before he formed the iconic uh, double act uh, with Harley, um, actually was Charlie Chaplin's understudy. So we are following this sort of little snippet of history of this time that not many people know about. It's kind of a true fantasy, the show. So we've taken events of them sharing the same bunk, and what would happen is per se, if they were in a room rehearsing, all of these things that happen on the boat, and we, we're not just on this boat on the way to New York, we jump to different scenes, the golf course, where, because, you know, Oliver Hardy was quite big into his golf, <laughs> so it, it makes sense to have a scene there with Ollie and Stan in this golf course, um, and we jump all over the place, and we go all the way back to Charlie's um, childhood, which is set in London, <laughs> so although we're on this voyage, to New York and we we do finally make it there and um, there's so much rich material of a true fantasy in between. So Charlie Chaplin's a massive character and we know a lot about him but what preparation what research did you do to get in the mindset of Charlie Chaplin? It was a really exciting time to start that journey of getting into sort of the movement the physicality the mindset of Charlie because uh, the audition uh, for Paul Hunter, told by Nidget, came at a time that you know we're, we're just sort of coming back to normality and theatres are opening up again. So it was, it really came as such an exciting time to be able to sit down and to just the joy of watching all the old silent movies and just to be able to have a laugh again. You know, it was just like it wasn't hard homework to sit down and uh, enjoy Charlie Chaplin and the slapstick and the and the escape into this world. And that's what we hope that we can do for the audiences as well because we all need a laugh and we all need a bit of escapism at the moment and I think that's kind of what the what the show does and uh, and so yeah going back to your question it was it was really just a joy to be able to just watch the material uh, as a starting point and then get up on its feet and in the audition it was sort of an odd one because I was asked to just uh, do a two-minute kind of act or a, a bit of a sort of a set piece, a bit of a, a physical theatre piece. And it was just really fun to be able to get into that world and sort of see how Paul works. And you know, the others have worked with Paul before. And, um, you know, he's quite uh, unique, I guess, in, in it's sort of quite um, anarchic and chaotic and this sort of very vibrant style. Um, and so that was really fun as a starting point to sort of in that audition and then using his pointers in there to then go in before rehearsals and see what I needed to sort of look at and uh, you know a, a, a cane a few props help with, uh, a hat and cane always uh, it's all vital props to help get into character. Now Nick you're hiding away there in the background there but I mean you're an integral part of the show you play so many characters perhaps tell us a little bit about them. The, uh, yeah there's several um, uh, well they're all incredibly hard work to play and it takes extraordinary skill. So it, uh, the first one was Fred Carno, so this extraordinary impresario who who started what was uh, came came known as the Carno Army, um, and he himself was an extraordinary comedian, I think, in his time, and is supposedly the inventor of the custard pie the face gag. So he was he was an extraordinary sort of gag smith, if you like, 
but I think one of the most extraordinary things is he, he could recognize it. He could recognize the talent. He was quite a hard taskmaster. So bringing these amazing talents together and teaching them what he knew and, and seeing how their own expertise in their fields, I think, you know, that, that's really his biggest claim to fame. It, after, after, you know, he, he really was a kind of broad billion that sort of went out of favour when, when talkies came in. So he, in his second, second part of his life was not, not much fun, really. But, but it, it's, it's great to play on the stage, you know, yeah. with, with these two sort of coming at me. <laughs> um, but, you know, Oliver Hardy, what, what a character to, to portray, you know. And it's, uh, it's sort of required, I think, when you know Stan Laurel is, is going to be in the piece, you know, with Charlie and Stan being the title of... Ollie has to pop his head around the corner, and that's literally what we do with a, with a, a sort of sketch that could be out of one of their films. It's, uh, it's sort of not, it's sort of based on truth in a way, because I think that there's one film where they did actually play golf in a, in a film together, but they sort of met a different way. But, you know, again, we're playing on the fantasy of it. Could it have been, you know, could they have met them? And how, 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 does, that, how does this pan out, you know, in the story? Now, obviously, one lady sat there all the way in the corner. Uh, you are an integral part of this. You play all the music in this. But do you have a favourite part in this show? Well, I don't want to give too much away. But I get involved with the audience in a very direct way. And I love that because you really never know what's going to happen. And then everyone realises that it's truly live. Because sometimes they can think they hear the music, think it's very rehearsed. They don't maybe... Imagine that I'm improvising a lot. They think that everyone's doing the same thing every day. They're not. But as soon as you communicate directly, everyone has to realise and remember we're all live now and none of us really know what's going to happen. I Remain is one of the plays that is going to be going out as part of the Manchester Fringe, everybody. It looks good. We spoke to Callum and Adam, and they're on the old place that used to be called Footlights. It's now called something else, but it's actually in the same building at Media City, actually. Uh, I Remain is a one-act play, an original play by Parisa Zaman-Paul. It's uh, three people in it, Callum, myself, and a wonderful lady, Julia. It's all about World War One soldier uh, Harry Hayes, a real-life individual who uh, fought in World War One, a father of six, and he wrote letters home to his children. And is that who you're playing? That's my character, yes. Oh. I'll be playing Harry, a real-life man, a lot of pressure there, getting that right. Like and who are you playing? And I am Will. So he's the great-great-grandson of Harry. He's saying he's old. You see that? Well, great, great, great. Callum <laughs> could literally be my son. He's, he's, I'm old enough to be Callum's father. Really? I would have yeah. said that. Yeah. Oh, God. Not to oh. your face, anyway. Yeah. So what happens? How does this story develop, then? So, Will, he's sort of a troubled teen, so he's having trouble at home. There's a lot of kind of dark stuff going on in his life, so he, he lives with his grandmother, Ada. Do you want to give Julia? Julia. Show Julia. You know Julia. Oh, we know Julia. The, the phantom flyer girl. Yeah. Yes. She's amazing. Yes. None of these anywhere, I promise. Yeah. So he goes into the loft and he finds a picture of Harry and some letters alongside it, and he sort of gets engrossed in these letters, and he kind of finds himself in them. I mean, they're addressed to William, which is Harry's his son's name. Yeah. Is. So it's kind of like, whoa. It's what a love coincidence. Story, isn't it? A love story over the uh, yeah. generations. Oh, that sounds lovely. Was there an inspiration behind it, you know, with this the writer? Is, Harry is uh, Paris's great great grandfather. Um, and yeah. Harry's great great granddaughter will be coming to the play. Oh, wow. Uh, so these people are still knocking about. So you've Paris got pressure Rose. on yourself, haven't you? Because you're paying like real I just people. Like that now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> 
Yes, there's, there's, a, there's a lot to get right, and he's doing mm. this so just it's, it's such a beautiful play as well, so well written. So One act play, it's short, funny, moving as all hell. It's Does it really fit in a lovely. specific genre? Ah, see, the thing that I love about it, it literally has something for everybody. Oh, right. So you've got the um, kind of the nostalgia, the ancestry mm. of Harry and his kind of, it's quite really emotional, violent imagery in, in, his, in his monologues. And then you've got Will, who kind of, well, he's got sort of younger people can see themselves, or people who are young, who are older, and maybe have gone through it kind of dark time. Ooh. So you can really see yourself in this place. It's got something for everybody. So when's it on? It is on the 24th to the 26th. I love September. the fact you had to check the flyer yeah. for that. Yeah, like. I, that. Do <laughs> I do numbers. Yeah. It's on tomorrow now. Uh, yeah. 24th to the 26th of September. That's we'll put that on the screen, space. actually. I think we've got that there somewhere up oh, there. Look at that. The there we go. I At the empty space. Oh, it's a footlights house. Yeah. The old oh. footlights with you. Yeah. Where's that then? It's Salford. Salford. M52G. Look at Yeah. Right near Media City. Well, we promised a fantastic full show, didn't we? And that's what we've delivered, isn't it? I think we've delivered. Do you think we've delivered, Orville? Oh, yes. It's brilliant, isn't it? You always <laughs> deliver, don't you? Oh, I do. Yeah. I do kidneys. Apparently so. Thank you. All right, then. Join us next time for another fantastic show. Only on... Your Manchester! Manchester.